So this morning, we are going to be talking about accepting Jesus as he is. See, we live in a world where there are many different opinions. Everyone has an opinion about every topic that's out there. And the same is true with Jesus. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, but not the Son of God. Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but not God Almighty. Marxists believe Jesus was a communist. Anarchists believe Jesus was a revolutionist. And the majority of the world simply believes that Jesus is a good teacher that lived 2,000 years ago, but has no real relevance for us today. And even within our Christian circles and those who identify themselves as Christians, we have opinions about Jesus and what he requires of us. Jesus is, is the nice version of the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is someone who loves everyone just as they are. He doesn't require you to change yourself at all. The Christian life is a life of joy and no suffering. Jesus wouldn't make you do anything that you don't really want to do. And then many will say to themselves, if if Jesus is not this way that I envision him, then I don't know if I really want to follow him. And you see, there's a, a big problem in doing that. Because what we are doing when we do that is we are making Jesus out of our own image. We are saying, this is how Jesus must be. This is how God must be. He must, con- he must conform to what I think He must to conform to if He is worthy to be worshipped. And really all of this boils down to that great sin that is at the root of many of our sins, that of idolatry. You know, J.C. Ryle said this, Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy but not just. A God who is all love but not holy. A God who has a heaven for everybody but a hell for none. Such a God is an idol of your own. As truly an idol as any snake or crocodile of an Egyptian temple. The hands of your own fancy and sentimentality have made Him. He is not the God of the Bible. And beside the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. See, when, when, we're, when we are unwilling to embrace the God of the Bible, the Jesus of Scripture, God as He defines Himself, it is truly idolatry. We're not following Jesus. We are following who we think Jesus should be. Who we have made Him to be in the idol factories of our hearts. But in this morning's passage... Jesus is going to challenge that very natural desire of all of us. He's going to put a very plain question before me, before you, before John, before his disciples, before everyone who is to come and read this passage. And that question is, are you willing to follow me according to my terms? Are you willing to accept me as I truly am? Or is there a different Jesus that you have made up that you feel more comfortable worshiping. And to see this challenge that we are giving that, that we are given, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23, and I'll read God's word this morning. 
Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This morning's sermon is titled, Expectations, Doubts, and Accepting Jesus as Jesus. And as we walk through this really quite interesting conversation that takes place between Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist, I want you to be on the lookout for these three concepts. First, what are your expectations about or from Jesus? Second, are your times of doubt related to your expectations of Jesus? And then thirdly, are you willing to accept a Jesus that doesn't meet your expectations? And so those are the the three topics that we are going to be looking at this morning as as we study this passage. And so the passage begins in verse 18. Uh, We have a new scene kind of taking place. You have the disciples of John who have been witnessing all of these things that Jesus has been doing. And then they go and they, they report what they've seen to John the Baptist. And if you remember, the reason you know, John's disciples are the ones who are having to go back and forth from Jesus, reporting these things to John, is because John has been thrown into prison. And we're told in Luke chapter 3 that John is imprisoned by Herod shortly after the baptism of Jesus. And why is that? Well, it's because John rose up in courage and he spoke out against Herod for his adulterous relationship and that got him thrown into prison. And now as a quick side note for us, John shows us here that speaking against the sins of your political leaders is not being too political, as many people often say, but it's being prophetic. And we should, as John does, hold our leaders to a biblical standard when they fall short. You know, it's not, it's not too political to talk about sin. It's not too political to call your government leaders to obedience to Christ. It's the example that we have in John the Baptist with Herod. The only thing is you need to know that you might get thrown into prison for it, just like John does here. And John wasn't in your modern-day prison like we, we have today. You, know, you didn't get free time in the yard to go around and shoot hoops. You didn't get two hours allocated for watching TV. You didn't get a library card. John is, is living in a, a, a literal dungeon, a dungeon that's hidden away within 
the desert. That's how Josephus describes it. It's a, it's a terrible place to be. And so because John then is locked up in this dungeon desert prison, he is unable to witness the things that Jesus is doing. You know, he was sent, as we know, to go and prepare the way for the Messiah, but unfortunately for him, he's unable to see the way that he has prepared. But, you know, at least he does still have some disciples, some followers, and we see that these followers are, are kind of acting as his, his news source. They're the ones who are going and witnessing what's happening and bringing that to John. But John is hearing all of these things that are happening and uh, something obviously causes him uh, to question. And so in verse 19 we see that, that he goes and he sends two of his disciples to go and ask Jesus a very important question. And the question is this from verse 19 and verse 20. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now when we hear that question from John, we have a few important questions, I think, of our own. The first one is this. What is John actually asking here? He's not super specific. He just says, are you the one? So who is the one that he is referring to? I think quite clearly he is asking if Jesus is the one who has been talked about to come. You know, the one who is going to be the promised deliverer from the Old Testament. The one who is the anointed one, the Messiah, the King in the line of David. The one who will both liberate and save the people of Israel. Now, if John's disciples are reporting to him accurately, John cannot deny that the Lord is with with Jesus, that the hand of God is working through Jesus. I mean, they've been witnessing Jesus healing lepers. They've been witnessing Jesus raising people from the dead. So then why is John asking this question? Well, I think this question reveals that, that he's unsure you know, as to whether Jesus is just some prophet who the hand of God is upon, who the Spirit of God is upon, or if he is truly the one, the promised Messiah. And so he asked his disciples to go say to Jesus, are you the one? Or is there another one coming? Is, is the true Messiah coming at another time? And so that's the first question. What is he asking? Now, a second question we need to ask, and I think perhaps a more important question to understand really how John is feeling, is why? Why is John asking this question? If we remember, Jesus was there for the bapti- or John was there for the baptism of Jesus. John was there when the heavens opened up and the do- a dove descended in the form of, uh, or the Spirit descended in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven declared, "This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased." And so, I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it not really get any clearer than that for John? That this is God's Son? That this is the Anointed One? And so why would he be asking if, if Jesus is the One? If Jesus is the Messiah? Well, we aren't told the exact reason why he's asking. But I think that we can infer pretty well from what we've seen and read thus far about John in, in the book of Luke. See, John has, has certain expectations, certain 
conceptions in his mind regarding what the Messiah is going to be like. He has this, this picture based on what he has read in the Scriptures and probably somewhat based upon the culture around him and the circumstances that he finds himself in. This is is forming for him what the Messiah will come and be like and do. If you look back in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, we see John's kind of vision for the Messiah. This is what he says. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is at hand to clear clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, everything that John says here you know, about the Messiah is right. Jesus is baptizing with the Holy Spirit and he's also pronouncing judgment on those who will deny him. You know, he's separating the wheat, <clears throat> those who will follow him, from the chaff. But the final unfolding of that plan in its entirety is not something that's going to be finished until the second coming of Christ. It's not a Christ comes and immediately this happened. It's something that happens over a period of time that the plans of God be fulfilled. But what John is expecting is that it's going to happen now. Jesus is going to judge his enemies now. And he is going to usher in the mighty kingdom of God and he's going to rescue the true remnant of Israel. And see, that's why John has has spent his life preaching a message of repentance. that That was his main message, that you need to repent and turn from your sins lest the Messiah come and judge you and destroy you and throw you into the unquenchable fire. But as John sits there imprisoned by his enemies, he's starting to question things in his mind. You know, the news is, is, is getting to him, that, that he's getting about Jesus, doesn't really seem to fit this picture that he has, these expectations that he has of the Messiah. You know, I'll give you one example, the passage that we just looked at uh, two sermons ago. John would have heard about the healing of the centurion's servant. I mean, what was, what was the Messiah you know, doing here? The Messiah, is, is, is he really going and, and, and helping out these Gentile military officers who are employed by the Roman Empire? I mean, shouldn't he be taking down the Roman Empire as he sits on his throne? I mean, there's only room for, for one king on the throne. And so, so what is he doing? How does that fit with, with John's idea of what the Messiah is to come and do? And then I think another reason John is, is asking this question, is Jesus the one who is to come, uh, is because John, I, th- I think, is probably struggling in prison. Maybe he had hoped that Jesus would, would come and he would liberate the people of Israel and he would liberate John from this unjust punishment and from his prison cell. 
But instead, you know, Jesus is out there on the, the outskirts of, of uh, Israel. He's, he's going around these small towns in, in Galilee instead of going and taking on the big guns in Jerusalem. And he's, he's helping the enemies of, of the Jews. And so, how does, how does all of this, this work? In the, the, the very Roman Empire who gave Herod the authority to imprison John is now benefiting somehow from the coming of the Messiah. And so John, he's, he's struggling. You know, he, is, he is doubting, maybe, maybe I was wrong about Jesus. Maybe he isn't the Messiah that I thought was coming. And so that's why he reaches out. He reaches out and asks the question, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And so now what can we learn then from kind of this first part of the interaction here between uh, John, John's disciples, and Jesus? Well, a few things. First, when we have the wrong conceptions about God or when we have certain expectations about him, when he doesn't meet those, it can cause doubt. It can cause doubt in our hearts. I hate to rip on John here because he's 10 times the man that I am, but if if John had a a proper understanding of the role of the Messiah, he he wouldn't have been struggling with this this doubt like he is. Had he known that Jesus was coming first to save the world and then again to judge the world, he may have been able to recognize right away that Jesus is the Messiah. He might not have needed to ask that question of him. And so a point for us then is, is that we need to be careful that our expectations and conceptions we have of Jesus, uh, that they are not wrong as well. And we need to make sure that they are true and that they are biblical. Because if we expect certain things of Jesus that we aren't meant to expect, when Jesus then doesn't go and meet those things, it can it can leave us in a place of doubt. I'll give you one example. I've been thinking about this lately. <clears throat> Telling my children that God will always protect them. Saying to my children, God will, will always protect you. you know, if they're in danger and they call out to God, He will rescue them and He will save them. Now that's an encouraging thought. And there is truth in that and that God is our protector but is it true that God will always protect us that God is always going to rescue us well if your answer to that is is yes then all the early Christians who died in the Colosseum I think would beg to differ or as we celebrate Reformation Sunday go go and tell that to you know, Nicholas Ridley or Hugh Latimer who were burned at the stake for preaching Reformation doctrine in England. See, God doesn't always promise to protect us in every circumstance. And so then going back to my example, if I, if I tell my children, God will always protect you, and then God decides in his wise providence and, and goodness and wisdom to allow something bad to to happen to them, you know, I don't want them to start questioning God because their expectations of God are not being met. My, my dad told me that God would always protect me, but God didn't protect me. 
therefore God must not be real or God must not love me because God can't keep his promises. Now, that, now that's a, a small example. I think it is a helpful one as our, as our world does tend towards a downtrend now uh, in our society. And I think it proves the point. If our expectations of God are, are built on things that aren't biblical, then it can lead us to a place of doubt. And that's the first takeaway. Second takeaway from this passage is that we see that even the best of the best can be led to doubt. In the next passage, Jesus calls John the greatest man to be born of a woman. Now that's, a, that's quite the compliment coming from Jesus. You know, John was a, a top-notch guy. He was someone who loved the Lord, someone who served the Lord, someone who gave his life for the Lord. And yet, even he still struggled with doubt. And I think that was in part because of the situation that he found himself in. He's chained away in a dungeon and he's sitting there awaiting his death. And that's so often true, I think, for all of us. You know, difficult situations, disappointments in our life can cause us to doubt God. It can come over us like this cloud that prevents us from seeing clearly, that prevents us from remembering the promises of God. You know, when you look around the world and you see it collapsing around you, when life just keeps hitting you with trial after trial after trial, as Job says, you know, why do the wicked prosper, grow old, see their children, see their grandchildren while the righteous suffer? You know, all of these things, all of these difficult situations can cause us to question and to maybe even doubt God. It, it is God really on my side. If these things are happening, does God really love me? Now, I don't think that doubt is necessarily wrong. Some people see doubt as the opposite of faith. But I think as we read through the Psalms, we see that the the psalmists, you know, time and time again are, are crying out to God with the questions that they have of God. How long, O Lord? Why do you hide your face from me? Why do you cast my soul away? So we see these men, they're they're clearly having some sort of doubt in the fact that they're bringing these questions to the Lord. But notice that instead of being rebuked for a lack of faith, we often see them being comforted by God in those moments. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. He has dealt bountifully with me. And I think this shows us that that doubt, doubt, when dealt with properly, is not wrong, but can actually serve to strengthen our faith and our communion with God. And this leads to the, the third takeaway from this passage, is that when we do doubt, when we are met with disappointment, in our walk with the Lord, we bring our doubts to Jesus. We bring our doubts to Jesus. It's somewhat of an oxymoron, but I'll put it this way. Christians doubt in faith. You know, we, we doubt in faith. We, we face doubts in life, but then in faith, we bring them to Jesus. 
That's what the psalmists are doing. That's what John is doing here. He's, he's struggling with these questions. And because he has faith, he's bringing these questions to Jesus. He knows that God has the answers for him. He doesn't go down some YouTube hole to find these answers. He, he, he doesn't go to a self-reflection class or a self-help class. He, he goes straight to the source. He goes right to God, right to Jesus. Psalm 94 verse 19 says, When the doubts of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. See, if you're walking through a a period of doubt in the Lord, bring those to the Lord. Bring your doubts to the Lord. We can have this tendency in the church to say, you know, doubting is just this big danger sign. And so as soon as I start doubting, doubting, I just, I need to cover it up. And I need to keep to myself and I, and I need to not express, you know, things that I'm struggling with. But that's not the Bible's approach. See, God can handle. God can handle your questions. And God has comfort for you in your pains. Ask and it will given, be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If you're going to doubt, doubt in faith. Doubt in faith knowing that you can come to the Lord and he is going to answer you. It's just like those, those words of that wonderful hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. You know, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what pain we needless bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. See, are you, are you doubting this morning? Are you, are you doubting maybe that God loves you? Bring it to the Lord Jesus. Are, are you doubting that God cares for you as you walk the path of suffering that he's called you to walk. Bring those doubts to Jesus. Are you doubting, you know, that as you follow God and you do what's hard, that God really has your best interest in mind? Bring those doubts to Jesus. Are you following whether, are are you doubting whether following Jesus is actually worth it? If it's actually worth taking your cross up? Well, take those doubts Jesus. Now moving on to our next section, we we, we receive some encouragement here in the response that Jesus gives to John. Look at verse 21 and 22. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, notice here that Jesus doesn't blast John for his doubting here. He answers him with compassion and reassurance. He blasts him with a bunch of miracles that he's able to, to see, he says to John, look at all that I'm doing. The disciples come and Jesus, in his omniscience, I think, waits for the disciples of John to come so that he can go and he can heal a bunch of people, he can cast out a bunch of evil spirits. And then he can say to the disciples, look at with your eyes what it is I'm doing. And then he goes and he, he, he quotes that passage that he started at the onset of his ministry, Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2, at least part of it. He quotes four four passages, and one of them is Isaiah 61. And he says this in Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord 
is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus then responds to these doubts of John by giving him this resounding yes. Yes, I am the Messiah. And in doing so, what he's, what he's doing there is he's, he's correcting the expectations and preconceptions of John regarding the Messiah. You know, he doesn't just, doesn't just say to John, yeah, I am the Messiah. Or John's disciples go back and now tell John that. No, he, he takes the effort to go and to do these things and to say these certain things in order to not leave John with his faulty conceptions about the Messiah, but to change them and to renew them. And rather than saying, why are you doubting? He, he, he focuses, he, he realigns the expectations of what the Messiah is actually like. And that's important because the root of John's doubt was his wrong expectations. And so Jesus goes after the root. He, he goes after the cause of the doubt, not the doubt itself. And the same needs to be true with us. See, if you struggle with doubt or think God is somehow failing you in, in, in how he's acting in your life and what he's doing, it's probably because your expectations need to be realigned with God's word. God has not failed. God never fails. You may just be expecting something of him that you really shouldn't be expecting. I mean, chances are we hear all, if, if John has improper conceptions at times in his life about the Messiah, chances are that all of us sitting here you know, have some sort of, of misunderstanding regarding the Messiah. And, and if, if Jesus doesn't meet those expectations, you know, is that his fault? Or are we expecting things of Jesus he's not promised to do? You know, God doesn't, you, you might be going through a hardship. God doesn't promise that the hardship you're, you're going through is going to be removed ever until he comes again. And God doesn't promise you that, that every relationship that you enter into is going to be this, this wonderful relationship that isn't a burden to work through and to deny yourself through. God doesn't promise that if you, if you follow him, it's, going, it's, it's not going to be hard and you aren't going to get hurt in the process. Now that might sound a little bit depressing. You might say, why would anybody come after Jesus? But keep in mind, you know, all the things that he does promise to us. You know, we don't want to grab onto promises that aren't there, but we want to hold on tight to the ones that are there with all of our, with all of our strength. You know, all that we can expect of him. Things like his ear is inclined towards you. You know, he's, he doesn't just, we, we all know that God knows everything, but there, there he's describing himself in a, in a very personal way. He's turning his ear towards you. He's, he, is, he, is, he is looking towards you so that he can listen to the cries that you're sending out to him in your hardships. You know, he's promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. He might lead us down hard and difficult paths, but we'll never be alone because he is always with us. He's promised us, promised us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even our own sin. 
which Jesus has taken on the cross for us. He promises us that He is working all things for the good of those who love Him. No matter what you're going through, no matter how you can't see the end of it, no matter how how difficult it is, you grab and you hold on to that promise that God is, is doing something good in and through my suffering. You see, there's a lot of things we shouldn't expect of God, but there are a lot of things that we can expect of our great and mighty God, and we hold on to those things as tightly as we can. And then one final thing now to note about this section is that you know, if, like John, our conceptions, our expectations are off, one thing it can do is it can cause us to miss the power of God working in different ways. It can cause us to miss the power of God working in different ways. I'm not sure if you can, if you can see that in the passage, but because John and, and his disciples are expecting a certain type of Messiah. They're, instead of having these conversations where they're rejoicing in what the Messiah is actually doing, they're, they're kind of like, ah, like really? That's what he's doing? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure he is the Messiah. They're, they're missing out on, on the work that God is doing there. And uh, I think we can fall into that as well. You know, when we get so focused upon our our struggles in this world, when we get so overcome with worry about the thing that we're going through, we can miss how God is actually using even that thing for some, some great work that He desires to do. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Let's say your family is going through a, a rough time financially. We can all admit that that's a, a difficult thing to go through. It's something that might be more so in the future as things are getting more expensive, the kids are getting older, they eat more food, the bills just seem to keep coming, hydro, gas, everything is going up. You know, if our expectation is that God is, is going to deliver us from you know, every difficult financial season that we find ourselves in, that we're not going to struggle in that way anymore, and then that becomes all that we think about, all that we pray about, all that we work towards, then we can actually miss out on the work that God is doing in that trial. I mean, maybe God sent you this trial so that you would learn to be more reliant upon Him. You know, maybe God has sent you this trial to, to see the, the blessing that others can pour out upon you when you're struggling financially. Maybe God is sending you this trial because money has become an idol in your heart and this is the way that He is casting that down out of your heart. You see, when, we're, when we are full of these, these wrong conceptions about God and, and, and the way that He works in this life, it can prevent us from reaping the full benefits for ourselves of what God has intended. And so then if you're going through some trial, difficulty, or, or, or thinking, you know, why is God letting this happen to me? Instead of focusing all your time on that trial, how to get yourself out of that trial as fast as you can, Perhaps try and see, you know, the greater work, the greater work that God is doing through you in that trial. Now moving on to the final section of this interaction, we see that Jesus leaves the disciples of John with one kind of last uh, beatitude. He says in verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And this, this point is really the summary kind of what, of what Jesus is, is trying to communicate to uh, John and his disciples. So he's saying their expectations aren't being met and so doubt is creeping in. Jesus then reassures them in their doubt, but he, he leaves them with a challenge you know, so that this doesn't happen again, so they aren't led to doubt again. And that challenge is this. Will you accept me as the Messiah? Will you accept me as the Messiah? You know, this word offend here carries the meaning of, of stumble or fall away. It's where we get our, our um, English word scandalize. To, to stumble, to fall away. And so Jesus is saying, really, blessed is the one who does not stumble, who is, who is not offended, who does not fall away on account of how I have just described to you the Messiah. Now, this might sound a little off, what I'm about to say, but it's true. Jesus is not everything that you want him to be. Jesus is not everything that you want him to be. He's everything you need him to be, but he's not everything you want him to be. If he was, everyone would follow him. And the saying would go, wide is the path that leads to eternal life. No, Jesus, Jesus recognizes that who he is, the person he is, the, the person we need him to be, causes people to stumble and to take offense. But he says to them, I'm, I'm sorry. You don't have the liberty to define who I am and what I do. I am not a God of your own making. And so the question is, will you accept me as I am? Will you accept Jesus as he is? If, if Jesus says something that you don't understand, something instinctively you're like, nah, I just, I don't agree with that. You know, is that, is that it for you? Do you, do you call it quits at that? Do you say, I'm not following that Jesus? I mean, I've, I've gotten that response more than once from people when, when talking about these difficult topics in the Bible and they've said to me, I would never worship a God like that. Chances are if you spent enough time talking with unbelievers, that someone will say that to you. I would never worship a God like that. I'd never worship a God who doesn't accept people in their sexuality. I would never worship a God who has an elect people of God. I would never worship a God who, who believes that men and women have different roles in, in the marriage and in the church. You know, but the, that's a problem because that's the only God that there is. And you, a mere human, don't get the right to define who God is. You accept him as he is or you perish. And so, in conclusion, ask yourself this morning, are you worshiping Jesus as he has defined himself or how you have defined him? Are there parts of God, parts of Christianity, commands that God gives that, that you like and that you're okay with going along with because of the benefits that it can get you? But other parts where you say, no, I, I don't really like that. I don't like that about God. Well, if so, you know, the Jesus that you're following isn't the real Jesus. It's not the real Jesus. And you should be worried because any 
other Jesus, but the real Jesus cannot save you. Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. If you're still holding on to this vision of Jesus, this vision of God that you have created in your heart, let go of that God, let go of that idol, and embrace Jesus' command to accept him as he is. Let me pray.